You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, now that it's the beginning of the year, I feel like I need to speak with a financial advisor. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much going on. And what is going on? I mean, Bitcoin, Tesla, what in the hell is happening right now? There's a new, a new political landscape. That. So that so so I figured uh, we, we've had a gentleman on before named Barry Ritholtz, who's a Bloomberg opinion columnist, has a podcast with Bloomberg called Masters in Business. And he's also the head of Ritholtz Wealth Management. And I was like, oh, yeah, Barry, we can solve this problem. Let's talk to Barry. Yeah, Barry is great. You can throw anything at him and he's probably has three opinions on it. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing we want to do is just bring up these things we're seeing and just get his take. And he does not have a shortage of takes. And they're usually good and they usually get you thinking. And so, I, you know, it's a good top of the year guest. And if you are interested in listening to prior conversations with Barry, we did a Use Your Disillusion Volume 1 and 2 episode a while back. And we basically just went really long on that one. We'll try to keep this one a little shorter, though. Yeah, that was the first and only episode that was two episodes. It was we could not contain Barry into one episode. But this time we're going to do it right. We're going to keep keep it to one, aren't we? Yes, we are. Well, we're going to try our damnedest. This time on Trillions, welcome to the jungle of 2021 with Barry Ritholtz. Barry, welcome back to Trillions. Well, thanks for having me again. Okay, we got to talk about the fact that this is uh, the beginning of a new year with a completely different political landscape than we've had for a bit, which is, you know, a democratic uh, sweep. Uh, right. So, so Barry, what it, how are you talking to investors and to, to prepare them for this new world? So, first off, the, the data about 2020 is so amazing and compelling that I think it's going to, if not influence the incoming Biden administration, at the very least, it will, uh, it, it will confirm their priors. It will, it will basically give them license to do what they wanted to do anyway. And the data is this externality hit the market, the economy collapsed, at its worst GDP was probably cut in half. We saw the single biggest 30% drop in the market, the single biggest spike in unemployment in the shortest period of time. And then Congress, that normally can't agree on renaming a library, passed the first CARES Act. It was, what, $2.1 trillion? Um, 
versus you know six or seven hundred, eight hundred billion for the financial crisis that was doled out over four months, four years. This was eight months, and what's amazing is you can really see it in the economic data. So year over year, we saw a one trillion plus increase in the after-tax personal income of Americans compared to the previous year. That's an 8% gain over like eight or nine months from like March to November. Same period versus 2019, giant increase. How does that manifest itself? Um, uh, Savings rates go up. Not only does retail sales go higher, they go above the pre-pandemic level. They spiked up. And credit card delinquencies are now at, you know, if not all-time lows, really close to it. And that's what, you know, the old joke, I think it was Warren Buffett, who said, give me a trillion dollars, I'll throw you a hell of a party. Um, Hey, here's a trillion dollars, and they threw a hell of a party. What does that mean going forward? Well, it means that the Biden administration now has carte blanche, first for the CARES Act 3, right? We just had a, you know, a a mini CARES Act, a trillion dollars. They're going to do another $2 trillion, part of which is going to include $400 billion for the vaccine rollout for the states. Another part of that is going to be a $2,000 check for everybody. Um, they'll pro- I'm guessing that there'll be a national mask mandate and a temporary lockdown while vaccines go out. And you can't fix the economy until you fix the pandemic. Uh, a lot of my friends on the right um, completely couldn't wrap their head around that and I, I think the data absolutely shows that. But it's not just the pandemic. You're going to see a long overdue infrastructure bill. I don't know, $4, billion, $4 trillion, $5 trillion, $6 trillion over a decade. If they were smart, they would fund this with 50 or 100-year bonds. I don't know how smart these guys are. But that's what I would do. We, we may have actually said that exact same thing last time I was on. This time, we're going to get an infrastructure bill. There's going to be a Green New Deal with extended um, tax credits for solar and EVs and maybe even smart roads with implanted RF devices so self-driving cars don't have to rely on, you know, crappy little cameras to see where they're going. They'll know exactly where they're going. Just a giant rollout. Oh, and P.S., we're also going to see a massive expansion of Obamacare when we added 35 to 40 million people to the role of uh, to the roles of insured uh, the first Obamacare it had a huge impact on healthcare and hospital and pharmaceuticals and that entire sector which is a huge chunk of um, retail sales this time maybe we add another 20 to 25 million people similarly going to impact uh, the economy and retail sales. All of those things, CARES Act 3, the infrastructure deal, the Green New Deal, the expansion of Obamacare, means that we're looking at a massive multi-year stimulus, which as we learned in 2020, it turned out that John Maynard Keynes was right. And when demand falls off, it's very easy for the government to replace it by substituting their own spending for what you would normally see from households and businesses. There's some offsetting costs. You're going to see everybody making more than 400K is going to see their top tax rate tick up a couple of percent. Uh, You're going to see the corporate tax rate probably go back towards 
28%. I don't know if it'll get to 35%. I'm more interested in the alternative minimum tax for corporations. So if you're an Apple or a Facebook and you're making hundreds of billions or a Microsoft, you can't pay like no taxes. There'll be a 12%. Hey, you report your profits to the your shareholders. That's what we're going to tax you on. So that's the that's going to be the trade-offs we'll see. So you just laid out a lot of spending, a lot of stimulus. That's your vision of the future. It's very, it's very clear. How do you shift portfolios or, or do you not? You just know all this and know that that's why you're in, you know, the Vanguard total market fund and, you know, whatever else, 60-40-ish. Or do you tweak things? Do you add an infrastructure ETF onto it or a clean energy ETF? Those have been seeing some flows. No. So basically, the, the, the big philosophy we try and share with our clients and investors is this. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of cross currents. You should leave. I, I, I wasn't exaggerating when I said own a globally diversified portfolio of low-cost ETFs. Hey, maybe I'll add rebalance once a year and then leave it the hell alone. But we, you mentioned the behavioral side. How do you train people to leave it the hell alone? Well, you give them a, a data-based explanation of what's going on in the world so they're comfortable with leaving it alone because when things don't make sense, they want to sell. When, when there are cross-currents and there's confusion and there's noise, hey, I don't really understand this. Maybe I should sell. And you know, one of the most popular pieces I wrote for Bloomberg Opinion this year was uh, explaining why, hey, maybe Mr. Market isn't so irrational after all. And we looked at all the components of the S&P 500 index to figure out, to answer the question that we got over and over from clients, this market doesn't make sense. I look around, the economy isn't going to hell. How can the stock market keep going up? There's something wrong here. And when you look around at, at why the economy looks like hell, well, your local dry cleaner is doing a third of the business they were. All the little restaurants are closing. The bars are closing. The little retailers, even the gas station isn't doing well. Gas is like a buck ninety. So everything is so cheap. Their personal experience is the economy is terrible. But that's not what drives the market. When we look at, we took apart the S&P 500 index and found yeah, the top 10 names are 27% of the index. And these are companies that are A, global. They get Most of them get half or more of their business from overseas, where they admittedly did a much better job than we in America did managing the pandemic. And B, they're perfectly set up for the work from home environment. So Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, go, go down the list of all those giant companies that are doing great. Hey, the pandemic went for another 10 years. They would be fine. They don't care. But when you look at What's doing really poorly, it's travel and hotels and, you know, your most people's personal economic experience is not very well reflected in the S&P 500. And in fact, the number that blows people away, take the 30 worst industrial sectors, um, 30 worst sectors in the S&P 500, the little sub industry groups, and just throw them away, send them all to zero. It, it, it takes 2% off of the S&P 500. So it, when you could explain to clients, hey, it may seem that the market is irrational, but your personal economic situation and what you're seeing around you 
is very, very um, not publicly traded. It's very private. And so therefore, it's actually rational that the global profitable big cap companies that are working, um, taking advantage of working from home are doing really well. And therefore, leave your damn portfolio alone. Okay, so if I, if I leave my portfolio alone, I'm, I'm still living in a world that has gigantic infusions of cash. Yeah. Stimulus, stimulus coming, Fed doing what it's going to do. How concerned about, you know, this bubblicious environment are you? So having been a trader and lived through the 90, 90s and 2000, um, this, isn't, this, this, is, this is still a fraction of that. Right. I, I remember when you would buy something and it would go up 30, 40 percent. Every sale was punished immediately. It was it was just, hey, from from I remember it was from my birthday in October till the top in March from 99 to 2000. The Nasdaq doubled. Right. We had the best year in, in a decade. The Nasdaq was up 46 percent. So it's still not not even a, a anywhere close to that. And by the way. Most of those companies that are doing really well have giant revenues and giant cash on the balance sheets and, and huge profits. That said, there are all sorts of pockets of speculation. Um, Bitcoin, probably the poster child of speculation. Uh, someone smarter than me can explain what its fundamental intrinsic value is. Um, I, I like to tell people the intrinsic value of a dollar is that we, it's our all, I'll admit it's a delusion. It's a collective delusion that a dollar has value. Plus, it's what Uncle Sam demands. You pay your taxes in, and they have a standing army to enforce it. So it's more than just an abstract thing. Bitcoin has become a, 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 an asset to speculate with. Um, the SPACs clearly have gone, you know, berserk. And what was the thing Elon Musk mentioned the other day? And the wrong company, you know, went up 50%. Uh, these are all anecdotes, but you know you see enough of them. Oh, and did I mention Tesla? Tesla looks a little bubblicious. I I, I don't want to short it yet, but I'm interested in it. I mean, the trader in me says there's a there's some money to be made on the downside there. I've just watched too many people carry down on their shields to want to step into that fray just yet. I I don't want to I don't want to go deep on Bitcoin, but do you own any crypto? No, none. Okay. And by the way, when Why? clients come to me and say, I want to buy some crypto, it's like, all right, go buy some crypto. I don't care. I'm not going to tell you not to. Just don't mortgage the house and leverage up with crypto because who the hell knows how is, how is this going to end? I could tell you where equities will be 100 years from now, more or less. I have no idea where crypto will be. Where will equities be in 100 years from now? Higher. <laughs> that, that's not a hard bet to make, right? And if it's not higher, we have you have to worry about clean water and air at that point. Right, right. Well, the, you know, a lot of advisors are, are talking about working in crypto to the portfolio. You see institutions getting into it. Is there any thought that you might lose or upset clients if if it's not part of the Ritholtz portfolio? You know, some of the basic rules of investing are know what you own know what it's worth, and understand how it fits into a diversified portfolio. And 
if, if someone wants to take, you know, 5%, 2% of their liquid net worth and buy Bitcoin, um, I would tell them two things. Write your password down and put it in your bank vault. Because <laughs> what, what is it? Something like 20, 25% yeah. of Bitcoin value has been lost. That uh, Stop and think about that just for a second. A fifth to a quarter of the value of Bitcoin is lost behind forgotten passwords or lost uh, thumb drives. So to me, that's not necessarily a, a – hopefully institutions will be able to solve that. Maybe maybe Fidelity or somebody else that is moving into that space will do it. But that's kind of a warning. The other thing is, you know, until you understand what it is, what it does, and what it's – you know, purpose. It, it, I, I like the explanation that it's a solution in search of a problem, but none of that matters. If someone says to me, hey, I want to own two or 3% of Bit- Bitcoin, great. We'll set up a side pocket for you, you know, a separate account. We won't charge you on it and it'll be here. And anytime you want to sell it or buy more, you can do it. Just understand, assume it goes to zero. That's how much you should put into it. Enough that it doesn't change your lifestyle. And if it goes to a million, hey, God bless. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Tesla. Okay. We were looking at some numbers in my team and there was some mind-blowing stuff. Besides the price jump, obviously, that's been parabolic. The volume in Tesla. Um, so for 20 years, not uh, nothing traded more than SPY. N- uh, sure. I think Apple did on one day. It was close, Tesla has right. now, Yeah. Tesla has now traded more than SPY for 26 out of the last 20 days. And in the past month, it's traded a trillion dollars. Um, what's going on here? Have you, re- have you ever seen anything like this? Is this the retail investor? Um, what do you think will happen to Tesla if we were to, you know, timestamp now and look back and we're, you know, we're five years uh, down the road. Uh, what call would you make? Where will Tesla be? And just give me your general w- wide take on Tesla. So, so I have a hard time, um, y- you know, you need a certain distance from things to be objective. If you're too far away, you don't understand anything about it. And if you're too close, you, you know too much and it's hard to see it. You guys know I'm a car guy. And while I'm both fascinated and intrigued by Tesla, the automobile, Tesla, the company, has not shown itself to be um, a great automobile manufacturer. They are interesting cars with great technologies but terrible manufacturing. Um, And I understand why Tesla didn't hook up with Ford 
or Toyota to manufacture the, this. But I don't know how long their lead is going to stay, keep them in, in the lead. So uh, the, the, a number of cars that are coming out are kind of fascinating. The, the initial ones, everybody is following. Here, first off, before we go into the details, Tesla won. Like, hold, hold aside the company, the stock. Elon Musk changed the paradigm of automobiles for the right reason. Hey, uh, internal combustion engines and, and carbon-based uh, transportation is destroying the planet and dis- impacting the, the, um, uh, the, the climate. And so, therefore, I'm going to introduce this electric car and everybody better come along or gonna, you're going to be left behind. And the rest of the car industry said, we're not going to let Musk do to us what Bezos did to retail and Bezos did to cloud computing and Bezos did to go down the list. So the paradigm has shifted. Elon Musk has won the internal combustion versus electric car debate. Now that he's won that, he has created a massive amount of future competition for himself. So the Porsche Taycan Turbo comes out, and it's spectacular. It's much better than anything out of Tesla, except it's $186,000. It's it's a high-end, luxury, very fast four-seat EV. The question is, can somebody come out and make a product that's competitive with the Tesla um, with either the Model 3 um, or, or the um, the Model uh, at Y or go down the list. And we now have an answer. The, the new Ford Mustang Mach-E is every bit as good as anything from Tesla. It The reviews are spectacular. Everybody seems to love it. The one thing people don't like is the name Mustang, but, you know, get over yourself. And the argument now is... And I have this argument with some mutual friends. Dave Nottig and I argue about this all the time. You seem to think Tesla is a car company. Their genius is the network of super fast charging stations. Dave, uh, range anxiety was has always been nonsense. 90% of all trips in a car are within, you know, 50 miles of the home. And if you're going to take any electric car on a longer trip, well, you may have to do a little more planning in the Mustang than the Tesla but, you know, so what? And P.S., there's still a bajillion gasoline cars around, so this isn't going to be a problem. By the time the gasoline cars go away, uh, I don't know if it'll be some consortium of Ford and Toyota and Volkswagen will have a charging network equal to Tesla's. Maybe the government rolls one out. Maybe a bunch of manufacturers agree on a standard, and they all use it in- interoperably. But I don't think that's worth the massive premium that Tesla is getting. And P.S., there are startups like the Lucid Air is a spectacular car. Um, uh, the I'm going to get the name wrong. The Bollinger, Bollinger the, the SUV and the pickup truck, really interesting. P.S., the, the GM electric Hummer, oh my God, that, that's a spectacular vehicle. So Elon Musk won. We're all going electric. And it's a matter of time before it becomes clear that Tesla is not going to have a 90% market share of the electric market. Um, and so at a certain point, and, and this is the difference between a company and a stock, and this is why 
I have no interest in shorting Tesla yet. Um, the stock looks fantastic. The company's on fire. It's just going higher and higher. It's a great story. The narrative behind it is just kicking everything else's ass. Eventually, that'll probably come to an end. And at a certain point, the downside in Tesla is going to be a great trade. But I don't think we're there yet. We're, we're Maybe we're closer than further. I don't know. But, you know, the three bullet points. Elon Musk won. Everybody's going EV. Tesla stock is on fire. Anybody who shorts this is killing themselves. But one day they'll say, oh, I wish I had a few pennies left to still short this. It's a shame I went broke in 2023. Can I give you a fourth bullet point? Which Hit me. is Kathy Wood might be even hotter than Tesla. So I don't want to diss Kathy because I think she built something spectacular. I um I watched from a distance that entire arc of her minority shareholder exercising the right to buy that forced her to buy him out. Now I don't know if she goes on to be a hundred billion or a trillion dollar company. I kind of think that she may have top ticked herself. When so when you see someone who's had just an amazing ride, I mean, what was it, six years ago? They were a hundred million, two hundred million. That's when they went to uh Reliance as their marketer and their this and that. And nobody expected her to blow up to be a fifty billion dollar company. But she just bought them out with a note at some ungodly price. It's undisclosed. I don't know if it's 50 million, 100 million. It's kind of weird. It it reminds me. So God bless her for ki- kicking ass. I, I hope the firm goes to $100 billion. But when we look back in hindsight and say, hey, uh, Kathy Wood f- financed a $100 million buyout of her firm, after they raised $50 billion and after a 160% raise, we may look back at that and say, she is like the mutual fund buyers that managed to top tick the hot funds. She may have top ticked herself. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope the fund does great. Um, I find her research and her approach fascinating, but it would really make for an ironic uh, ending to that story. And like as an advisor, you guys don't touch anything like that anything that's highly concentrated, you know, because we do talk about this idea of a barbell portfolio, very low cost passive for 80%. And then you, you know, put some hot sauce on top. And, you know, because the middle, those middle closet indexing active managers seem like it's just, they're not, nobody's interested in that anymore. They want either cheap beta or shiny objects. Right, right. Well, well, the, you know, the closet indexers, what's the point? Come for the high fees, stay for the underperformance. It, it does nothing for you. So, so if you're going to be pretty, um, if you're going to be pretty beta, and maybe you have a lean towards value or small cap or whatever, to me, the more interesting aspect of the concentrated positions is not us putting clients into a cl- concentrated position, but a client coming to us and saying. Hey, I'm a C-level executive at fill in the blank, ExxonMobil, Amazon, Google, Apple, it doesn't matter. And while I love your concept of a diversified portfolio, I don't want any more exposure to fill in the blank, technology, energy, whatever it is. And so that's one of the reasons we've been embracing um, for those sort of clients, direct indexing. Uh, We work with O'Shaughnessy's product called Canvas. 
and we have about two hundred million dollars uh, in that product. And and basically, what th- and we were one of the early beta testers with them, and and just really blown away with how good the technology is. Basically, we could take our core portfolios of you know fifteen mutual funds and give it to them and say replicate these with all individual stocks. And they run the holdings through their their software, and they say, here's 2,500 stocks that look exactly like your 70-30 portfolio. Um, And then we get to say, okay, separate from this $5 million, this client has $10 million in Apple um, employee stock options and another $2 million in Apple stock that he can't sell. So A, let's tune out Apple from his holdings. And B, what else trades very much like Apple that he doesn't need more exposure to? And then we tune that out. And so they get a diversified portfolio without all of the hyper-concentration that they come to us. There's a couple of other things this software does. The ESG aspect of it is mind-blowing, how specifically you can tune out different things, whether it's gun manufacturers or reduce the exposure to companies that never have had a woman on their board of directors. Like you can really fine tune this. The software really is just amazing. And, and it, it's one of the better ESG projects, uh, products I've, I've ever seen. Okay. A couple of questions on this. So custom indexing and direct indexing is something we've been tracking. Um, parametric custom core is the big one. Right. It didn't really see much in flows last year. I you guys are definitely tip of the spear type advisors, but right. It's I I the ETF and Vanguard and a couple all you can get a whole portfolio for four basis points. Right. And you're not making active bets. So there's no chance you're gonna underperform because you are the market. You're gonna take active bets and pay up. Isn't that against where where it all went? It all went from complex to simple. Isn't this going the other other direction? Yes and no. So so first, I, I'm not of the camp that thinks direct indexing eats passive. I think it's a very specific niche with a very specific audience. Um, and the three key audiences are A, the concentrated equity position that you have to work around. That's one. B, the ESG um, investor who really wants the ability to fine tune it in a lot of ways, and see the the high income as opposed to high asset investor who has a giant tax bill. The tax loss harvesting ability when you have 2,000 stocks as opposed to 12 mutual funds, it's worlds apart. It's, it's you know, hundreds and hundreds of basis points versus I could squeeze 20 or 30 basis points swapping this total market fund for that total market fund. This is just a huge, huge um, source of tax alpha, if I could use a horrific cliche. (laughs) And so I agree, the tax alpha, and it makes so much sense. The ESG is hard to argue with because ESG ETFs aren't going to cut it if you have specific views because it's a cookie cutter approach. So subjectivity is great. Um, That's, I I get that. The tax alpha, you're going to run out of losses to use at some point. And if a bear market hits, it, well, the ETFs and the mutual funds, that can th- that advantage should go away. 
And then you're left giving all your money to one company. Does that, is that a little concerning? Like, whereas when I go food shopping, I like to get different brands. Um, I just don't, I don't want to give my whole, I, I don't know. There's something about having choice and different brands and. Sure. Um, well, I that's know. why I said, I, I don't, I don't see us with 1.8 billion and I have 200 million in this. I don't see the whole thing rotating over to that anytime soon. That said, the complexity is is certainly an aspect there. The software covers it. The cost and credit O'Shaughnessy was something very, very clever that they did. They said, if you set this up as pure beta, there's no cost to it. We're only going to charge you for the active share. So our portfolios are about a 25% lean towards value and, and small cap. And so you're only paying a fee on that 25%. Um, and the 75%, you're, you're basically getting at no charge because the transactions are free, the holding is free. And so, yes, you're adding a level of complexity, but surprisingly, you are not increasing the fees. So it's not six BIPs, but it'll end up being, you know, 20 or 30 BIPs, which is pretty reasonable. And that's before, you know, the tax advantage. So I don't see a cost penalty with this. Right. If you're that type of- yeah client who's got a bigger income and a lot of tax um, issues they're dealing with. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So, Barry, I just want to get your take on this, too, which is that obviously Vanguard is getting bigger and BlackRock, the duopoly. They now own about 16% of most stocks. Yep. With a concern, I think the distortion concerns have died down a little bit, like, you know, because they're seeing stocks go up and down. So clearly active is in control. But what is bubbling up is how are they voting? And should two companies have that much power in their voting? And I guess as somebody who owns Vanguard and just watches this stuff, what do you, th- do you think they have too much power? And if they do, what should be done? So we own Vanguard and BlackRock also. And uh, I just saw the other day, the crossed, uh, I think the Financial Times reported, um, Vanguard crossed $7 trillion, which is a, a pretty big milestone. Um, do they have too much power? Well, well, first of all, any investor who wants to vote their own, you know, um, individual proxies can- we just know from experience, nobody does that. Nobody really cares. So, um, or, or, or they don't care enough to, to vote the proxy. And so when you look at BlackRock and you look at Vanguard as fiduciaries for their clients, the, you know, the, the, I want to reframe the question. The better way to – my response to that question is another question, which is do you think that BlackRock and Vanguard – 
with 16% of the outstanding equities, $7 trillion for Vanguard. What What is BlackRock? Eight point something trillion. Does anybody believe for a moment they want to get into the business of voting proxies against the interest of their investors? No, this isn't the argument, the Milton Friedman argument that, no, banks and brokers would never behave ridiculously and blow themselves up by using leverage, um, and therefore they don't need to be le- uh, they don't need to be regulated. That argument is very, very different because they're engaging in a risky behavior for further profit. This is, hey, maybe they're. Uh, this is what the the legal uh, law. F- the the law review community in desperate need of topics to write about has has been you know about and and it's kind of silly stuff i mean i guess there is a risk that a big private company like vanguard or a big uh, publicly traded company like blackrock maybe they might in a given instance abuse their 7% market share and vote a proxy in a way on a given company that is against their interest, but uh, against the investor's interest. But why why are they going to go down that rabbit hole? They own some percentage of 20, 3,500 companies. Like uh, it, now, that's why you get these letters as to why from Larry Fink as to why you should be more green and you should have a diverse portfolio, uh, board of directors. And he's doing it by letters because he can't do it by proxy. Otherwise, as our colleague Matt Levine would say, that would be, uh, you know, uh, the basis of securities litigation. You're giving an excuse for lawyers to sue you because you're not operating in your in your client's best interest. So, that's a long answer to I don't really see that as as a realistic um, thing that's going to happen. And the first time it were to happen, the outcry would be so, you know, loud, it would never happen again. There would be new restrictions put in place internally. But you have a really nice business. Why mess with it for something as stupid as a proxy vote? Who Who cares? Okay, here's my question. When we get back to normal times, whatever that looks like, what's the thing from this time that you want to make sure that you retain? So there's a couple of things. We, we've talked about this, my wife and I, my partners and I. First, um, the, I, I've lived in New York my whole life, and the winters here are less than desirable. And while I'm not a giant fan of Florida, I've always fantasized of just going someplace warm and sunny for a month or two and working remote. And I always wondered if that was doable. And and now we all know it's completely doable. Um, The more RIA-related aspect to that, um, uh, we've discussed internally. My partner, Jess Brown, wrote a long uh, blog post about this. You now know as an RIA that local doesn't mean anything. You have a national potential client base because nobody saw anybody for the past nine months and everything worked fine. And so whatever hesitancy there was about, I need a local advisor, that's gone because 
if we're doing this over Zoom or Google Hangout or whatever your preferred um, technology is, if I'm down the block or across the country, it's meaningless. And I think that's going to potentially change the industry to some degree. Um, the, the ability to hire people remotely that don't have to come into the office every day. So I think, I think that's going to be a change. And, and then the other thing you kind of come to realize is the advantage of just a, a clean sheet of paper and just saying to yourself, hey, I have to drop all my assumptions. I, I, I can't assume that I have to be in the office five days a week. I can't assume that clients want to meet us all the time. I can't assume that we have to have, you know, a big office in the city. The, I think a lot of fundamental assumptions that had inertia and a general rational for their existence um, get, get a clean um, review because it's clear that a lot of our assumptions about everything uh, turn out to be wrong. Barry Edholtz, thanks for joining us on Trillions. As always, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find Barry at Ritholtz. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.